What if it rained food? What if Earth was a cube? What if we had nine lives? What if bits could fly? It's absurd. If money grew on trees, if we didn't have knees, if we walked through life slightly magnetical, it's absurd. Absurd hypotheticals. Hello, everybody, and welcome to Absurd Hypotheticals, the show we overthink dumb questions so you don't have to. I'm your host, Marcus Lehner, and I'm joined here today by Chris Yee and Ben Storms. Say hi, guys. Hey, I'm Chris. Hey, I'm Ben. Uh, guys, we're actually going to do something that's a little bit in some of our actual expertises here. Not mine. Yeah, not yours, because you don't... <laughs> I don't even remember what your expertise is, Ben. <laughs> Man, half the time I don't either, so... Computers, but not yeah, computers, sure. I think is what I, what I recall. <laughs> but our question today is about concrete, and specifically, what if concrete didn't exist? And Chris, since you are the actual factual licensed civil engineer, tell us a little bit about what concrete is. I am actual and factual. That's true. So the common misconception that a lot of people think is that cement is the same thing as concrete, but it's not. So cement is like a part of concrete. Concrete is actually a mixture of cement and then aggregates, which are like small rocks or it can be other things too, but it's usually rocks. So we're just saying that concrete is the cement and the rocks mixed together. But I think in our scenario, we're still saying that cement still exists. They just never mix them together. Right. So I'll go ahead and start with my answer here. And kind of where I started off with what I was thinking is, okay, I know lots and lots of buildings have, you know, concrete foundations, of course. We use concrete all over the tent. You know, the concrete, we use it for our bridges, for our buildings, for our houses, yada, yada, yada. And as I was listing the things that break out, I was like, ooh, maybe it's fast to list the things that don't break. And then couldn't find many of them. <laughs> like, I was I was reading this, I was like, down the rabbit hole, I was reading about houses with, uh, like, pressure-treated wood foundations. Only I couldn't use it because the guy who kept writing it really annoyed me because he kept talking about how weak concrete was if it wasn't reinforced. Which, with my civil engineering background, I know you have to put the steel in the concrete. It's a two-part system to have any strength. And he kept saying, concrete sucks, and it drove me batty. So, <laughs> I was like... It was the one of the angriest I've been reading an article for, like, the silliest reason. <laughs> but... <laughs> Do you know the guy's background? Like, was he an engineer? No, he was... He, the reason he was looking to do a different foundation for his, his house was because he wanted to be eco-friendly and not use concrete because of the environmental impact. Mm. Which, you know, damage is done, my dude. <laughs> <laughs> You're, there's enough... There's more concrete out there than, like, anything else. So... Rather than list out the four mud huts that would survive, I decided to look at slightly different area because we're saying the concrete disappears, and I want to look at that moment of when the concrete disappears. What is what does that look like? Because now you have all these buildings that suddenly don't have a bottom, uh, and they're all going to fall. The bottom is important. The bottom is important for the building. All the buildings are not going to be in good shape after this fact. The top's not important. The bottom's important. <laughs> <laughs> the top can be important. It gets very wet without a top. That's true. So I was going to see, it. do all these buildings falling down, does that impact actually create new problems? So this is almost a little bit similar to like the, the typical, the, the classic what if questions. What if everyone in the world jumped up all at one time and landed? Like what would that do? Would that create a giant something? You know, would it move the Earth? The answer is always no, not really. Because, as you may know, the Earth is very big. Technically, it does. Technically, yes. The Earth moves a minute amount. <laughs> 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 it 
which is a fancy way of saying it doesn't move. Uh, it doesn't move any more than it already randomly moves as it wiggles in its orbit. But the force distribution across the globe is a bit tricky. Um, and also, even if you're doing buildings, it ends up being pretty much irrelevant. So it's really the local effects that are going to matter a lot more and be more interesting. Like, not the whole the whole world as a whole isn't going to be affected, but there's going to be some places where there's lots of buildings that are going to be hit harder. So let's look where we can expect one of the most dramatic impacts, New York City. So what I've basically spent my last few days doing was looking through building data and had lots of fun doing it. There's lots and lots of people on the internet competing to tell me exactly how many, how tall the buildings are on average or how many of them there are and all that. So actually, there's actually a really cool database available that has literally just every building in Manhattan mapped out, like the height, the footprint on a 3D digital map. It's pretty awesome. You can go around it. It's very fun. So the average height of a building in New York City, and I'm taking New York City to mean Manhattan, the the the, big, the main island, is about 60 feet, which doesn't sound like that much. It's about four to five floors, even in Manhattan. Like, the very, very downtown has a bunch of skyscrapers, but most of the areas and most of the blocks have just, you know, normal, you know, four to eight-story buildings. There's four to five for an average is quite high. And there are over a million buildings in Manhattan, 1,066,354. So I got those, and now I just have to figure out how much those buildings weigh, which was tricky because I didn't have the square footage for all the buildings. So basically what I did from there was I took the land area of Manhattan, uh, about 22.8 square miles, and through some very stringent eyeballing and scrolling, said, oh, can't be more than 35% covered in these buildings. <laughs> <laughs> very scientific and accurate. Very, very scientific eyeballing here. I was, I, was, I was thinking it might be like 50%, but you do have the, you have the streets, the roads, and there's actually lots of courtyards in the middle of the city blocks, so it's not like so as dense as you might expect. So... 35% covered in buildings. So this is going to be the rough square footage of the buildings themselves. And I can take that and turn it into a weight. Typically, a large building, uh, like three plus stories, has weighs about 350 pounds per square foot of uh, living area. So this gets us to 350 billion pounds of building now suspended above their non-existent foundations. To put it in a little bit of perspective, this is approximately half the weight of all the people on Earth, is the weight of the buildings in Manhattan. The next question becomes, how far are they going to fall out? How deep are the foundations for buildings? For a typical large building, there's about one basement floor for every floor of building, for every four floors of building above it. An interesting, you know, I find it interesting, this is my, this is my civil engineering knowledge coming in, but... <laughs> If you have a area where the foundation sucks, like the you know you're building on a bunch of clay or dirt that isn't like doesn't offer a lot of structural support, basically the weight of four stories above replaces the weight of the soil that you remove to dig the one story of foundation. So basically, if you have a four story building with the one story of basement, it doesn't change what the soil at the bottom like is feeling. So your building is you know therefore covered and safe. Fun engineering fact there. But anyway, basically we have four or five floors on average. We have roughly 1.3 floors of basement. 
gives us a fall distance of about 15.6 feet is what I used. So now we know how much weight we have, we know how far it's falling, we can calculate the potential energy of our buildings to see how big the impact force is going to be. So multiplying it out, altogether, these buildings will hit the ground with a combined five point, combined force equal to 5.8 kilotons of TNT. This is a big number. It's actually slightly reasonable. Um, this is on par with some nuclear weapons. Um, the Hiroshima bomb was 18 kilotons. So on the small side of nuclear weapons, so it's gonna do some damage. But of course, the number I was most interested in is what's the earthquake gonna look like from this? So the 5.8 kilotons of TNT is the equivalent of a magnitude 5.5 earthquake, which is not a good one. It's not the worst one, but it's not a good one. And that's pretty much it. There's going to be an earthquake in Manhattan. It's going to be a 5.5. And the real problem is going to be, you know, that anyone in the buildings is going to be crushed by a building, not so much the earthquake after the fact. And everywhere else. <laughs> yeah, and everywhere else. Yeah, it's going to be bad. It's, it's just like everything is really, really bad. And I'm just going to zoom in on this one little bit because that's what's fun for me. Yeah. Well, that's where it'll probably be the worst. Either there or like Tokyo. Yeah, it was kind of it was kind of interesting. Like the they did a study of like which cities have the highest average building height. And Manhattan was like New York City was like in third and like Boston was above it, but Boston and Santa Fe, Santa Fe and Boston were 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 higher. And like Boston, I'm like that doesn't count cuz they counted like just like this, the little downtown area. I'm like <laughs> oh. not fair. Not fair. Yeah. They had like it was like 80,000 like building some compared to a million so it was like you know a hundredth of the size weirdly if you only count the small part of boston that has all the tall buildings it has a higher average of tall buildings i don't get it doesn't make any sense to me dubai has the highest average if you only count the burj khalifa <laughs> it's crazy <laughs> yeah i'm just i'm just like mad about statistics and how they're reported about places dude that is my life <laughs> anyway <laughs> yeah um chris what did you look into so i wanted to look at the history of concrete because i kind of actually sort of interpreted this question a little differently than you. I didn't I didn't assume that all the concrete disappears overnight. I assume that it never existed in the first place. So like in the past, people just never created concrete. And that's kind of why I made the distinction between concrete and cement, because in my scenario, they do still they can still use cement, just not concrete. But I wanted to find like the earliest instance of people using concrete and like try to like see how that affects the future like and all the time going forward after that point. So, I went way back into the past and apparently the earliest account is really far in the past. It's 6500 BC. Oh my. Yeah. The Nabatea traders, which are like an ancient nomadic tribe in northern Arabia, apparently they had like concrete floors they had housing structures that were concrete, and they had underground cisterns that were concrete for, like, storing water in the desert. And all the articles that I said saw said that there was concrete, but they weren't really specific about, like, the details of the concrete. So I tried to look into it more. And what I found is that they basically said it was, like, crushed up limestone, like, mixed with water and stuff and to make, like, a cementitious material. And as I've pointed out, you need aggregates in there. Um, so I think technically this isn't actually concrete. They've just 
people keep on saying concrete for some reason <laughs> instead of man cement. ragged ragged on the 6500 bc nomads because you know oh uh, it, actually it's cement not concrete yeah <laughs> they're, not, they're not that advanced and even if it is concrete if if i'm wrong about this and they did include aggregates and stuff it was really a limited use of the concrete it's not like a widespread use so it doesn't have that big of an impact on like future civilizations or anything so I want to find something a little more impactful. So I went forward in time a lot to 3000 BC <laughs> to Egypt. So the pyramids in Egypt, there's a debate going on about what the blocks are actually made of. Some people say that they're made of concrete. So there's a hypothesis that the blocks are a limestone concrete mixture. So it has limestone cementitious material. And then there is aggregates in there is what people are saying. But this theory is not widely accepted. The more widely accepted theory is that it's just full limestone blocks that were cut out from a quarry nearby. And they like stack them and uh, put like mortar in between to, to stick them together. And I guess you could technically maybe call them mortar concrete because they had other stuff in there as well but it's a little questionable and i don't think it's clear cut enough to say that this was also the first instance of concrete and i think it's it's also not widespread enough for what i'm looking for it's like only like if this never never existed back then then the pyramids didn't exist but like what do the pyramids do they just sit there they don't do anything they transmit the signals to the aliens coming down so uh, yeah so we never see the aliens yeah, they they would never the aliens would never come. We they would have never you know given us all our cool technology back when, and we would have gone extinct and gotten eaten by the Tyrannosaurus Rexes. You're right. Rexes. You're right. I know my history. <laughs> <laughs> so I ruled out the pyramids as like my first instance I'm going to use, and I went even further into the future. I went back to or went forward to 600 BC, um, which is like around ancient Rome. Now. Ancient Romans are actually credited as the first concrete engineers because they did a lot of experimenting with like different mixtures of concrete and they were like the first ones to implement it widespread. And there's a little like the range of their use of concrete is a little fuzzy. So they said like anywhere between like 600 BC and 150 BC is kind of when it started to go widespread, uh, but somewhere in there. And it is definitively concrete. It's not, there's no gray area. Well, it's all gray area. That's how you know it's concrete. <laughs> <laughs> True, I guess. Yes. So what kind of concrete did they use? So fittingly, uh, we call it Roman concrete. And for the cementitious part of the concrete, they used, um, they generally used what's called pozzolanic ash, which is like a volcanic sand. And then for the aggregates, they used a whole bunch of different types, like they experimented a lot. So there are a lot of different types of that. But um, for the most part, the cement part was the same. And this Roman concrete actually led to what is called the Concrete Revolution, which was an architectural movement in Rome. And the concrete allowed that the, the main feature of this architectural movement was the increased use of domes, because the concrete allowed for more domes to be made because it was less restrictive in terms of shape compared to like stone and brick. Uh, so during the age of Augustus, apparently they like rebuilt a lot of the city of Rome. And during this age of Augustus is when like the emergence of a lot of domes came in, into their architecture. 
And some examples of this are like the Mausoleum of Augustus and the Theater of Marcellus. And the, the Pantheon, which is a famous building, has the largest unreinforced concrete dome. Mainly because we reinforce our concrete now. <laughs> <laughs> that was like the biggest undersell the Pantheon ever heard. The Pantheon, which was a famous building. <laughs> you yeah. know, the one. <laughs> and I guess the reason... Like, they didn't have reinforced concrete back then. Apparently, reinforced concrete wasn't really invented until 1853. Francois Cognier, I think that's how you pronounce his name. He invented iron reinforced concrete. But that's like way, way in the future from the ancient Romans. So um, all the stuff in Rome was unreinforced. Now, before domes became popular in Rome, they did still exist, like, obviously, because... It's a shape. <laughs> <laughs> all shapes le- are in Rome. All all the main shapes are present in Rome. All protractors lead to Rome. And they weren't just in Rome. They were like in other parts of the world too. So like in China, they had stone and brick domes um, for their underground tombs. But the introduction of concrete allowed for the span of domes to increase a lot. So you got much larger domes than what had existed before to like a monumental size. So, like, early masonry domes had a radius-to-thickness ratio of 50, but modern domes, which includes concrete in, like, combination with steel and stuff, they have a a radius-to-thickness ratio of 800, so it's way more efficient at just making big domes. Um, And, like, if you don't know, domes are basically the ideal shape for concrete specifically because concrete is, especially if it's not reinforced, Concrete is really good in compression. It's not good in intention. So the dome shape, actually, if it's like a proper dome shape, then every part of the dome is in compression. So it's taking advantage of the concrete. But if these domes didn't exist anymore, if they did exist, they were just smaller. Or if concrete didn't exist, I, I feel like these domes wouldn't have been as popular. And they basically, like, as buildings grew bigger and bigger and bigger, I think these domes would have started to get phased out. So you wouldn't have modern domes like Capitol buildings have domes and stuff, and greenhouses and conservatories have domes, sports stadiums have domes. Those wouldn't be domes anymore. They'd probably just be square shape or whatever. But like you might be thinking, so what's the big deal? Why does that matter at all? So there's one feature to a dome that's unique only to domes, And that is the acoustics. So a dome has, it creates what's called a whispering gallery. So if you're standing inside a dome-shaped building and you're standing on like one side in a very specific spot and someone is standing on the other side in a very specific spot and one of you whispers, then the other person can hear you really clearly just because of the way that the sound waves bounce off of the walls and the angles and stuff. And then like if you're standing in between those two people, you can't hear the whisper. So that's called a whispering gallery, and it's there's a few of them all over the place. But a famous one is in the U.S. Capitol building. So the U.S. Capitol building has, in their statuary hall, they have a famous what's, what they call whisper spot. And their statuary hall was actually used as the meeting place for the House of Representatives between 1807 and 1857. And the interesting thing about the statuary hall and the whisper spots specifically is that John Quincy Adams desk was right on the whisper spot. So 
John Quincy Adams, he was a president. Uh, but after his presidency, he became a member of Congress and he participated in a lot of debates and stuff that took place in the statuary hall. And there are, this is an urban legend, but people say that he would pretend to be asleep during the debates and then he would eavesdrop on his opponents and like use that to his advantage using the whisper spot. That's incredible. <laughs> the power of the whisper spot. <laughs> now, this is just an urban legend. And if you look more into it, you discover it's not really considered to be true. And actually, a lot of tour guides seem pretty annoyed and angry that people do believe it's true. <laughs> <laughs> if I hear about this goddamn whisper spot one more goddamn time. Yeah. Like, all the articles I found were of, like, tour guides writing about it. <laughs> Can you believe these people showing an interest in the trivia about this location? <laughs> just, it, just the worst. It is true that his desk was on the Whisper Spot, but I don't think, like, back then I think there was a whole bunch of furniture and stuff and, like, curtains and all that that actually, like, dampened the sound and it didn't actually work. I like the idea, I like the idea that, well, you said from the Whisper Spot, like, there's a specific other location that could hear you. Yeah. I would like the idea that, like, they're doing a speech or whatever, but they can also just, like, give side commentary from the whisper spot. Like, <laughs> believe this freaking guy. Yeah. He's just, like, he didn't remember his speech, so some guy's feeding him his speech. <laughs> so, yeah, the equivalent of, like, texting someone while someone else is giving a speech. Like, you, you hearing this? <laughs> yeah. So, it's probably not true that he did this, but let's assume it's true for the sake of my answer. So, if John Quincy Adams is relying on this dome-shaped to beat his opponents what happens if he does if he no longer has this advantage so john quincy adams he was actually extremely inf influential in the house of representatives and he was one of the most prominent national leaders that opposed slavery so he would like repeatedly present petitions to abolish abolish slavery he actually argued on behalf of some of the slaves that were on the amistad uh, which is like a slave ship where uh, the slaves like revolted against their um, the people driving the boat. What do you do? You drive a boat, <laughs> sail the sure. boat, sailing, sailing the boat, well, sailors only if it's a sailboat. But well, they mostly were didn't have too many steamboats. Fair, yeah. okay. <laughs> yeah, and he actually got the those slaves like he he gained their freedom through like from that debate, and then like during his death, a young Abraham Lincoln was actually present during his death and. John Quincy Adams actually sort of paved the way for uh, Abraham Lincoln to finally abolish slavery later on. So I'm not like, I know it's a stretch, but if there was no concrete, there would be no domes. There is no domes. There would be no whispering gallery. If there's no whispering gallery, then John Quincy Adams would be less influential in his uh, debates about slavery which means that Lincoln would not have abolished slavery. And I don't want to say that concrete abolished slavery because it's kind of undermining like the a hard lot of work things. and yeah. determination of a lot of good people and like the hard battles that were fought. But maybe concrete is just a little more influential than you thought. And that's assuming that um, the John Quincy Adam whisper spot thing is true, which it isn't. <laughs> but... Yeah, <laughs> that's my answer. And assuming no one shifts anything in your hall of mirrors, the those facts line up. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> that logic holds up. <laughs> so that's where I'm going to end, I guess.
Ben, where did, what did you do? So I'm not going to completely talk about concrete, actually. I'm going to start oh, talking about that's good because it doesn't exist. <laughs> well, then get to a new show. We're talking about concrete. We're, we're, we're getting there. So concrete, and you can, guys can correct me on this as civil engineers, is from what I saw between a third to a half being on, on a concrete made of sand, right? Yeah. And so sand is not something we think about as being a limited resource, something that you actually use when you're saying there's a lot of something. You'll say that, you know, there's as much as there are grains of sand or whatever. I was actually wondering, I, I tried to figure out, or, you know, if anyone had figured out how much sand there actually was. There was a, I'm going to say paper in very loose terms from the University of Hawaii that tried to figure it out basically the same way we do math, which is very funny to me. They just kind of estimated the total volume and area of all the plants' beaches and just, you know, did the math out from there, basically, and got something like 7.5 quintillion grains of sand in all the beaches in the world, which is fun, but... uh. Regardless, it's something that we don't think of as being, you know, a limited resource, but it actually is something that we are using very, very rapidly uh, for things like construction. The numbers I saw varied. It looks like as of 2014, the numbers were all around 15 billion tons per year. More recently, it's about 50 billion tons per year, which, by the way, that increase is kind of insane, just sort of on the face of it. And roughly half of this usage is in concrete. Because we do make a lot of concrete, roughly two cubic meters per year for every person on the planet, which is enough to build a 27 meter tall, 27 meter wide wall that goes around the entire equator every year. Why aren't we doing that with it? <laughs> right? Awesome. Seriously. But what's interesting is that, you know, I brought up beach sand specifically earlier on, you know, how much sand there is. Something I didn't really know about is that that sand and concrete is predominantly not like desert sand or sea sand. And the problem is that desert sand is eroded by wind and it's very, very smooth. And it's actually so smooth that the grains don't bind together well enough to make strong concrete, which leads to some very interesting situations, such as the fact that if you look at Dubai, which you know obviously has done a lot of construction uh, in recent years, most of their sand, despite being in the middle of the desert, is imported from generally Australia. In 2014, they spent almost half a billion dollars on sandstone and gravel imports. Love it. Which is, once again, just buck wild. But it's not all, it's not all necessarily used for, um, for concrete. There are other uses as well. There's a lot used in fracking, which isn't actually usually beach sand, so we don't have to worry about it too much. But the big one that is frequently beach sand uh, is land reclamation, which is just basically if you have a country that's small and you make it bigger, you just put shit in the water until it's land again, pretty much. And sort of the, the biggest example of this is, is Singapore, where over the past 40 years, they've added about 50 square miles of land mass, which doesn't sound like all that much, but that's about that's a lot. Yeah, well, it's it's Singapore is under 300 square miles. That 50 square miles is about 18% of their land mass has all been added in the last 40 years which you would imagine takes up a lot of, of raw material. And it did. And most of that came from nearby islands. And there are at least two dozen Indonesian islands that are just gone since 2005 because of sand mining. They just don't exist anymore. This is, this is, the, this is the fun way to, to invade small islands. Britain had it wrong. You're not supposed to go there and occupy. You're supposed to yeah, just, just bring take them back. the sand yeah, back. Come on. Think how big England could be by now. <laughs> With... um. With Singapore, it's actually such a big problem that Indonesia, Malaysia, Malaysia, and Vietnam have all banned exports of sand to Singapore because it was such a... They were just literally losing their countries to Singapore trying to expand. 
And so, you know, obviously with all these uses, it is a, a big industry, this, you know, sand mining and exporting. In 2019, it was a roughly $1.9 billion in sand exports. I will say that sounds like a really big number. It's not as big if you look at like other things that are you're exported. When I found a list of, of different exports, uh, it's roughly the same as like silk, which isn't a huge one. And about half the export value of, and I quote, umbrellas, comma, walking sticks. I guess they're similar. <laughs> you know, sure. So, you know, it's this, this huge industry. But one of the things that, that does happen when you have this this material that is uh, needed for construction and, and particularly in, um, you know, developing countries is that there is actually a lot of issues with sand theft. And this is actually the story that I, I, I found here is actually what got me down this whole rabbit hole initially, which is that I found a story about in 2008 in Jamaica, there was a resort being built on the north coast of Jamaica at the Coral Spring Beach. And this resort had about 500 truckloads of sand. They had, you know, prepared, they're ready to sort of fill out their beach. And then basically overnight, it just vanished. 500 truckloads of sand. <laughs> and over the course of three months, there were no arrests, no leaves, no nothing. Um, people were actually pretty sure that like the police were not not in on it, but you know, bribed and there was a bit like a cover up. I looked so hard for any updates, I could not find any. The last thing I saw was that the police were, were doing forensic testing to figure out if the sand on other beaches nearby matched the sand that was stolen, which is just hilarious on its face, <laughs> once again, that you can do that. I don't know. Wait, when did you say this happened? 2008. 2008, okay. And I, 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 I looked so hard, I could find no follow-up. That, As far as I know, the sand just vanished. A lot of people actually think that it was stolen by a different resort. That's like the running theory is that another resort just like hired a bunch of people to go and steal the sand for their own beach. I want to make a movie about this. I I want the movie to be made. <laughs> I want to see this. I want to see Ocean Eleven. Like <laughs> Ocean Front Eleven. Ocean Front Eleven. <laughs> but yeah, and it's and the crazy thing with all of this is that it's not just, you know, a one off crimes like this. There are actually uh sand mafias. There are <laughs> very real organized crime problems around sand, particularly and most of the reporting I saw was related to India because India is obviously undergoing, you know, a lot of construction and sort of a big, you know, boom. And illegal sand mining has a very low investment requirement. You kind of see a bunch of people who are willing to carry sand around. Um, very high reward. And that's a very good combination when you want organized crime. And there are literally mafias in India that have murdered people, you know, politicians, journalists. There are, you know, farmers who are trying to to stop these these illegal sand mines because they're like mining out their farmland. And there's actually, you know, legitimate organized crime that has risen up because of how valuable sand has become. Most I want to see that movie too. I also want to see that movie as well. There's who knew there <laughs> were so to, many. I, want, I just want a scene of like a farmer like over by the ocean, just like working his tails, and like suddenly there's like a bunch of boats with like and excavators come by and just start taking away his sand and yeah. like reducing the size of his land. And he's like, "No, stop it!" <laughs> it's it's crazy. What was that voice? <laughs> I don't. I was gonna let that go, but what was that voice? <laughs> it was my farmer voice. I don't know. <laughs> No, man, don't take that. <laughs> I need that sand. Um, but yeah, so so really, that's kind of I don't I don't have any kind of like you know 
crazy, uh, ridiculous ending here. Because the ridiculous thing is already happening, which is that there are sand heists and sand mafias. And if there weren't concrete, we'd use, from the essence I saw, roughly half as much sand as we currently do. So we probably wouldn't have those things, which, although the world would be less cool, I guess, it would also be probably a lot better. So long story short, aside from the whole, you know, not having 90% of what we make our billions out of, the world would technically be a better place if we didn't have concrete. All right. And with that, we move on to our would you rather question of the day. All right, Ben, this is a food question. Um, So I'm going to start with you. Sounds good. Are you ready? I am ready. You should say no one of these days. Yeah, if he, if he says no, I'll just go to you, Chris. That's, that's oh, how it okay. works. That was, that was the long game. You've ruined my plan. <laughs> Would you rather cover all your food in gravy or cheese? Gravy or Ooh. cheese? Okay, so I'm. we got to lock this down. What kinds... So I'm assuming with cheese, we have a choice of cheese. We also have a choice of gravies. Because yes. there's a lot of kinds of gravy. Okay. There's a lot of kinds of gravies. So we have variety. Yeah. What makes something a gravy? <laughs> you tell us, expert. <laughs> like it's usually it's usually like flour and fat. That's kind of it, right? Like what makes something you like thicken you'd like thicken fat with flour and cook it down and right? That's kind of it. I think so. I don't gravy know what... is a sauce often made from the juices of meats that run naturally during cooking and often thickened with wheat flour or cornstarch for added texture. Yeah, I don't know what like instant gravy is made of and if that counts. Um, it's, it's probably just like, you know, technically still, yeah, that, that counts, <laughs> I think. There's something animal related in there. So what would, what would be the gray area that you're questioning? Well, I know like, like sometimes weird people call like red sauce gravy. I don't know. That's weird. It is weird. I don't <laughs> agree with it, but I've heard it. But okay. So we're going with. So it has with, to be related to meat somehow. Yeah, meat based. It has to be gravies. derived from meat. It has to be a thing where you look at it and you're like, oh yeah, that's gravy. <laughs> okay has to be identified like if you ask someone what that is and that like it's gonna be yeah that's gravy i mean i feel like you get a lot more variety of flavor in cheese now okay does cheese have to be melted cheese because for some reason my mind originally it was i guess because i was thinking about gravy uh the wording is it was in my mind too yeah i mean that's the simplest that's the the default way i think that just says Cover all your food in gravy or Cover cheese. Cover all your food in gravy or cheese. So it could be like shredded cheese. Or like like grated Parmesan. Okay. Looks okay. like the... You probably need like a minimum amount that you put on, right? I mean... Yeah, it's got to be covered. covered. Covered implies that you see the cheese slash gravy, not the food. So there's a layer of cheese or a layer of gravy. Right. Exactly. Not to be a thick layer, but it is a layer. What is the thinnest cheese? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I don't think this, like, cheese is good and gravy is good on most things, I think. I guess we're just trying to figure out, like, there are, right, exactly. There are a lot of things that it doesn't really, you know, I'm I'm cool with this kind of either way, right? Like, baked potatoes? Sure. Sign me up. Give me both. But what are, like, in the ones that aren't so slam dunk, which is better? I mean, it'd have to be, like, desserts, right? Well, I also feel so. I'm I'm not gonna lie. I'm I'm definitely lean towards cheese, 
just because I feel like you can find an acceptable cheese for a lot of things in ways you can't find an acceptable gravy. Yeah, cheese can be a dessert thing too. Mm-hmm. It's a little weird, but you yeah. could do it. I could throw some goat cheese on chocolate ice cream. Sure, why not? Yeah, it's like creamy, so it yeah fits with things. Or like ricotta, you know? Right. That That is a, you know, ricotta goes in like a, a cannoli. You know, there you go. It's a thing. Is there is there anything to the fact that cheese is, a, I think, more expensive than gravy to cover all your things with? Uh, economically, you could be right. Well, if you wanna if you wanna use gravy, like if you want good gravy, good gravy, um, you have to. <laughs> you're gonna have to get, you get. Were you possessed by a ghost for a second? <laughs> I, I was. I was possessed by a 19th century lawyer for a minute there. <laughs> Is the same ghost that possessed uh, Marcus when he was doing his farmer voice. Exactly. Yeah. It's <laughs> the secretly spooky episode of Absurd Hypothetical. It's, it's actually just the ghost of like a, a cruise ship comedian who's really bad at impressions. Um, <laughs> you're going to need to buy a lot of meat to like cook to get the drippings for your gravies. Unless you want to use all instant gravy, which I personally don't really want to do. Well, are we saying that you have to make your gravy or that you just have gravy that's already made? I guess that's an important question, Marcus. Is this gravy provided for you? No, you have to make it. Mm. Oh, that makes a big difference. That I does think. make a big difference. Well, do you have to make your cheese? <laughs> no, you like. <laughs> you can. I mean, if you can go to the store, you can go in the store and buy pre-made gravy. But I imagine you make the instant gravy. It doesn't just magically appear in your fridge. Right. Okay. 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 So you don't have to like make a turkey and then make gravy from that turkey. No, no, no. Okay. I think even ignoring that, I just don't want, I just really don't want gravy on most things. Like a salad. You can put, I put cheese on salads all the time. That's easy. Yeah, cheese seems more versatile than gravy. Is there anything that cheese doesn't work on that gravy would? Right, that's the important. Is there just anything that cheese doesn't work on? (laughs) Yeah, it's just a Venn diagram of cheese is just a bigger circle. Like, I think, I think exactly, you know, roasted meats, I would far rather have gravy on than cheese. But it's not like cheese is bad on it. It's kind of weird on it. Like I would put, I would put gravy on like a steak. I wouldn't put a slice of cheese on a steak. But if you had that and you ate it, you wouldn't be like, "Oh, that's bad." Yeah, there are there are like like gorgonzola and like blue cheese encrusted steaks and stuff too. So actually, that technically exists. Hey guys, is the answer that we already put cheese on everything? <laughs> yeah, I'm just like, I'm like, yeah, I can't think of any. Like, I think that this is the the real point is I can't think of a single thing that wants gravy that doesn't want cheese. Yeah, there's not much. I don't think there's anything. I can think of a lot of things that also I would put cheese on that I would definitely not put gravy on. Yeah, the list is substantial. I've never had. Apparently, people say that cheese and apple pie is good. I've never had that. Uh, cheese and apple is good. I haven't had cheese and apple pie but i definitely had just like slices of apples with, with cheese That's i can't imagine that uh <laughs> that gravy and apple pie is good um i've probably unintentionally done it at thanksgiving before yeah maybe that would work for me i wouldn't turn it down um apples and gravy though <laughs> that would be a little weird yeah all right yeah, uh, cheese... i guess it's time to vote but i think we've all convinced each other i was gonna make one more point that cheese has the advantage of not having to be a liquid it can be a solid if you want that is yep. true. Gravy also pretty Gravy much has to ruins be, all hand foods. Either has to be warm or has to be a gel. So, <laughs> yeah, man. Well, that one went, I guess, kind of the way we expected once we thought about it. Literally, all. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. There you go. Put cheese on things, not gravy. Three votes for cheese. If you can think of something that 
needs gravy but doesn't want cheese, feel free to send that to us either through the email, through absurdhypotheticals at gmail.com, along with a question for an episode potentially. That would be cool. We love getting listener questions, and you can email those to that uh, email address. You could say it in a as part of a review for the show. Another way that's uh, we'd love to see it, writing reviews for the show, is a helpful way to help us grow naturally and organically and for free. And if you want to have us just be making the gravy, as it's as it were, you can uh, go onto our Patreon, www.patreon.com/absurdhypotheticals, and click on that become a patron button. And for just a singular dollar, you get access to all our bonus content specifically for our patrons. And it's awesome and fun, and you should go check it out. Uh, in any case, you should also stick around for next week when we answer the following question. It's a random superpower fight. We're going to be duking it out, guys. Probably with dumb superheroes. <laughs> Always with dumb superheroes. The goal is dumb superheroes.